Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by the lovely Joe Stuff Gilbert. Joe Gilbert, a.k.a. Jungle Joe. Somebody who over the years here I've gotten to know really well. We've shared tons of stories. Him and I have a connection that I think reaches far beyond just a casual friendship. We do get to sit down and really, I think, get to know each other. And I thought it'd be nice to bring him on the show because what I have learned about him over the years, and actually this morning we chatted quite a bit, but is that he's led an incredible life on his own terms. Uh, never really compromised for anybody, I think, except for his daughter at one point when he realized uh, he had to get sober. Yeah. And uh, with that yeah. said, Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chapman. <laughs> it was really good to see you the other day, and it's really nice to be here. It's like deja vu. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, it's, uh, I was super surprised to see you, and I've been seeing these things, and I think this is a... I, it, I was immediately interested in the whole idea of this, um, and I'm glad to see that you're pursuing it, man. Do you consider, like, do the, does the term misfit and reject think, does it fit you? Because, I mean, um, like, for an older generation, has a negative You know what? I thought about that. I thought about, am I a misfit and am I a reject? And it's, you know, I think the reason that phrase fits is not necessarily that any of us, including me, are that thing. Excuse me. Um... But many of the people who are expats have either thought of themselves that way or been thought of that way by people close to them, their families and friends and, and whatnot in the United States as misfits and rejects. Mm-hmm. And you know as well as I do, having been in Nicaragua a lot, you have met literally a lot of misfits and rejects who really are misfits and rejects in the strictest yeah. Definition. <laughs> running you know. from the law. You can't <laughs> yeah. go back to yes. the states. Yes, a lot of people running from the law. Tax a evasion. lot of people with some odd sexual proclivities. Yeah. yeah. Um, Drug addictions, alcoholism. Yes. Running from child support. Like, oh, you know, like, that's a big one. Yeah. They're running from something. And, you know, I think that the people... I don't, you know, I don't know if you have really necessarily gotten into people who are running from something, but you are... You have, and you, we talked about this this morning, you have touched on an idea about people who consciously went out to either find out who they were or realize their full potential. And some people do that through a job, some people do that through, you know, a variety of different ways, but you found... And it is a niche group of people that are very much trying to change, either reinvent themselves, invent themselves for the first time, or uh, explore their create their, how their creativity or something like that. And I just I think it's a really cool. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing. Thank you. I think it's a great product. Thank you. And, so. and you're coming on, I think, as somebody who's not necessarily running from something because no. you, you face your demons. Yeah. You're actually I running. You're running towards something. Yeah. You're running here yeah. because yes. you love it. I do. You have established, you know, yes. a nice thing here. And although you keep yourself in the states as well because you have a family that yes. you're, you're growing there, like, but yep. you do see this some point in your future as uh, uh, maybe whatever six month on six months. Yes, on sort of thing. I could see myself doing this. I stumbled in Nicaragua. Uh, you know, it was an educated guess. Mm-hmm. I looked into it. I knew about the revolution. I had been very interested in the revolution when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I followed around Contra, and I was curious about Nicaragua like any other person who reads or anything, you know, their relationship with Cuba. Um, 
and who were these people and what was this country for real. And when I came down here, I found out that, and I don't want to talk specifically about, I have to talk about Nicaragua because that's where we are right now, but I found out it was a completely different place than I thought it was. Didn't you? Yes. I think the stigma of, you know, the revolution, the fear that was instilled in us being Americans, yes. that this was a dangerous place. I mean, how many times have you heard in America, Nicaragua, is it safe down there? Or people yeah. really have no idea. They think it's some kind of low-end Cuba, you know, boxcar Cuba. Then it's not. No, yeah. You know, it's completely different. And it's interesting because your research wasn't only done through the reading of, you know, about the revolution, about the... Yeah. Comandantes, like when you actually set out to come to Nicaragua, you had a very unique way of choosing Nicaragua, which yes. we kind of went over this morning. Can you tell my audience yes. how you made I, that choice? We'll get into why, what compelled me in my earlier life when I was younger to go do even do something like this, but I had some money that I wanted to do something with. And I came down here with a couple little kids and a wife and checked into it for a couple months and kind of liked it. And I thought, I, I, for some reason, I knew that if I followed surfers, that's where the money goes. <laughs> and so I found out that in Nicaragua, the big waves were in southwest Nicaragua. So I literally came down here and rented a two-wheel drive truck. I didn't know how to speak Spanish. And I honestly, utterly stumbled upon Gigante when I got to Tola. Like just aimless driving. You took aimless a, you driving. Took, you took a literally aimless driving. I took the turn to Gigante out of Tola. Hey, let's see where this goes. Wow. And I drove that horrible road into Gigante, and there I was. And the, the, a guy was hitchhiking down the road, uh, uh, a Nicaraguan of short stature, like <laughs> many, and I picked him up in, in the back of the truck, and I knew about that from picking up Mexicans traveling in Mexico, that that's a nice thing to do. Mm -hmm. Country guy, rural part of the country. And he and I became immediately fast friends, and he... Uh, represented the owner in a piece of property that I immediately bought the next day. Oh, really? Yes. Is that quick? Yes. And this guy did not have a hundred cordobas to his name. He had a new baby. And I, everyone who everyone who lives in Gigante and listens to this knows it was such would know Zacarias Lopez, mm -hmm. the mayor of Gigante. <laughs> Self-appointed mayor. <laughs> Self-appointed mayor of Gigante. And and that's the way my whole thing started down here. That's really cool. You know. Yeah, you said you touched upon speaking Spanish. And yeah. I know about your past and your yeah. father. And maybe can you take us a little bit through your childhood and yeah, how you yeah, actually yeah, learned yeah. Spanish? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a family of eight kids. Uh, Post-war parents, like lots of kids had white kids and uh, uh, my dad was a guy who was very curious about the world we were all encouraged to read my dad was a politician we were all eight of us encouraged to have our own opinions about the world and we were expected to read about the world and to bring those opinions to the dinner table literally and we had big discussions and since my dad was a politician and he was the mayor of a town that was in the West, a pretty much a prototypical suburban town. It had been a rural town outside of Denver, but the suburbs were busting loose. My dad could see that. He was the youngest mayor of the town. He was mayor when he was 27, straight out of World War II. And he saw the suburbs coming, and he procured water rights through the 21st century for that town of Arvada, Colorado. And I'm ready to speak Spanish. In between all of that, um, as a politician, I got to meet a lot of his friends who would hang at our house. The mayor of Denver, the governor came over. They were friends of my dad. They were his buddies. They drank cigars and played cards and 
Uh, he spoke Spanish too, though. And he spoke some Spanish because of Mexicans, Chicanos, like we know him now, he grew up with. And he was interested in Latin culture. He always was. And, I, you know, I was lucky to have parents like, my dad was an angry post-war man with too many kids. Did he have PTSD, you think? I did. From, <laughs> uh, you know, that's something I neglected to tell you. I was diagnosed later with PTSD because of the physical abuse that I was his punching bag at, from the age of six. And when I was about 54 years old, I went to a clinical psychologist who gave me a series of legitimate tests and said, you are the prototypical battered child. Interesting. And it was my dad. And, and my dad was one of those men who didn't know how to love, but he did love, but didn't know how to express it. Mm. So he was my Ernest Hemingway. Mm. You know, he was full of anger, and he taught the boys to box because he thought it was really good to learn to beat the shit out of people. Mm -hmm. That was a valuable skill <laughs> to know because it wasn't a kind world. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, any, at any rate, he joined the Peace Corps as one of the first people in the Peace Corps in the early 60s. And he was interviewed by Sergeant Shriver. And we moved to Washington, D.C., and he was appointed one of the directors in Venezuela. And we got to Venezuela, and my parents immediately put us in Catholic boys and girls schools. And we, it was like you said, it was full immersion Spanish. And we, as kids, you pick it up, and mm -hmm. we learn Spanish immediately. Mm -hmm. And uh, being, the, being with my dad in that country... Uh, I remember, I remember very well going down into the, the interior of southern Venezuela. Like the Amazon. Yes, the Orinoco River Basin, near the Amazon. And finding volunteers who literally had not seen or heard from an American for possibly two years. And I remember very well these volunteers coming out of the jungle and crying not exaggerating, and hugging us, and just breaking down. They were so happy. Because they just felt like... They, they, they did were... not know what had happened. <laughs> like, just because the Peace Corps structure wasn't quite... It wasn't... Worked. The Peace Corps wasn't really fully built. So and there just... were holes in the machine. I mean, there were, there were, there were some gaps... So these volunteers got dropped off and maybe yes. said, we'd be back in six months, yes. but two years later. Things would change. Someone would, an administrator would be dropped from the program, and they wouldn't see anyone. For two years. For a, between a year and two years. And the bus system was at best rudimentary in yeah. Venezuela then in the mid-60s. Yeah. So... So they'd sit in the jungle just being like, someone will come. Someone's going to come soon. <laughs> someone has to come. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm... I know, I, I'm... You know, I'm I'm scratching marks on a tree, and at some point I know I get to leave, you know? Yeah. So we would have huge parties at our house in Caracas for volunteers. I mean, blowout parties with 150 people. And that's when, early on, I very much learned the thrill of alcohol. <laughs> very much so. Um, I started drinking when I was 12, and I realized that that was my friend. That, yeah, you were saying on the campaign trails where you had your uh, first well, beer. When I was in my dad's campaign bus, yeah. I discovered Coors beer, and I also found out no one was counting him. So yeah. I would hit him at two or three. Yeah. And I, re I really remember the first day I did it and how I realized I found a friend, something mm -hmm. that could protect me, because my life was... Uh, very tumultuous because of my dad, you know, mm -hmm. and the, what what they called spankings mm -hmm. were really beatings. Right. I mean, they were, it wasn't good at all. And and then what, you're in Venezuela where you were, what, like 15 or 16 or something like that? 15, 16 years old, and I was out on my own mm -hmm. because you could buy alcohol there, and I was running with a very wealthy crew of Venezuelan friends. I went to a private school, and some of these kids literally had moats 
around their houses and lived in castles. Mm. I know you know the kinds of people I'm talking about. Yeah, we have them here. You have them here. Yeah. And um, so I would drink. I would like, drink. What, what do you think we were drinking on average at that age? Oh, at that oh, it was hit and miss. Okay. I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't hitting the bottle regularly, okay. but I knew I had found a real friend in alcohol, you know, okay. and, and I, at, from a very early age, I could see that I could double up on other people's volume. Mm-hmm. I could drink twice as much as anyone else. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you have a kid like that, that's a bad sign right. for all, everyone who wants to know. Yeah. Um, so by the time I got back to the United States, we were, I was in my senior year of high school and I was, it was on. Mm. The party was on for Joe Gilbert, and I, I, it's hard to believe I got out of high school. I, I never went. You were saying, though, your, your, your family also did a stint in Africa, which you didn't attend. I didn't do that. When my parents came back, my dad went and got his master's of surgery at uh, Colorado State University. We moved up to CSU, and then he got a teaching position teaching veterinary surgery at the university in Nairobi. And I became involved in the draft. I got drafted through the lottery at the time, and I was part of the Bring the War Home movement. It was a movement to bring the war back to the United States and put it in people's face by showing them that there were many young men who weren't going to, we were going to run and not run to Canada. We were going to stay in the United States and force the feds to find us. And the American Friends Service Committee and the Quakers were part of it. It was a legitimate movement. So we came back, and I got drafted at the age of 19. And I was living in downtown Denver, grooving, getting high and drinking. And You say I, getting high, like getting high on what? You, whatever. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, Marijuana. Whatever there was. Okay. Heroin, blow. Okay. At the time, blow was a good, healthy drug to be doing. It okay. was much better than heroin. Uh-huh. Heroin was evil. Cocaine was fun. Sociable. Sociable, <laughs> you know. And and it was also, you know, no one, there was no, there was no such thing as crack or anything. No one mm-hmm. smoked it. You sniffed it. Yeah. And that was, that was harmless. Mm-hmm. Sniffing something, mm-hmm. big deal. So I got drafted, and I moved from a house at 930 Pearl Street. When I got drafted, I was notified by the feds that I was in trouble. And if I were caught, I was sentenced to two years in a federal prison, which that's what happened to you. I had a friend um, that got two years in prison because we went tripping one day, took acid on his induction day, and went to the botanical gardens, and he ended up in a federal prison. So I moved next door to 936 Pearl so that I could look out the window, and I could see the feds parked in their car on the street. So I did this for two years, and I lived in a closet in back because this lawyer owned the building, and he was sympathetic. Many people were against the war. And if I'd see the feds out there, I had a rope ladder with wooden steps on it, and I'd throw it out the back window. There was a closet with a window, and I'd climb down the rope steps and go to work, and I learned my first trade as a painter. And I learned to be very good with a brush. Yeah, because you couldn't use your social security number. Because I couldn't use my social security number. I couldn't go to college. It was, you know, and I've always thought of that as an example of what war really does to every young man, whether you go or not. I mean, war is, you know, you... It's so trite to say that we're fed a bill of goods about war, but most war is so utterly unnecessary, you know. The Viet Cong, after the war, years later, told Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense during the Nixon years, if you only would have asked us what we wanted, we could have resolved all of this. But mm-hmm. no one asked. We went mm-hmm. to war. Yeah. And we need to avoid that. It's not fair to... The people that it's not fair to the young men and women that grow up in our countries. It's not fair. Right. It's not fair. I want to talk a little bit about that more because I know it did really affect your life profoundly. Yes. Like it, it, as you said, like it doesn't just affect the men and women who go and serve. Couldn't go to college. Couldn't. You had aspirations to become a musician. I wanted to go to the Berklee School of Music. I wanted to go to New York and I wanted to act. I was one of those creative kids whose dad 
swore he was homosexual and told me so. And told you that you're homosexual. <laughs> That's a morale booster. <laughs> that made me feel good about myself. And I mean, how do you even deny that to your dad without feeling really awkward? You know, I might as well have said, "Yeah, you know, I think I am." Yeah, uh, he might have been happier. It would have been more explainable my my the way I behaved. You know, maybe right. if I were gay. Right. So uh, I, that was all. All that uh, those things I wanted to do: go to Berkeley and act and. You know, over a three-year period, they were just... I was told, no, you can't do that. I had to hide out. Literally hide out. Yeah, you missed your window. I mean, I was I was being looked for. They were going to my family, and it was intense. Yeah. And I missed my window. So after the after I was given amnesty, well, I believe it was Carter, uh, I was finally able to start college again. And at that point, I was completely into pleasing my dad, so I got a pre-med degree, got a degree in zoology, be a doctor, make my dad proud. The guy had been slinging me around the room when I was a little kid, and uh, I got out of college, couldn't get into medical school for a couple of years, so I moved to southwest Colorado and went to work in a sawmill, and, uh, and really at that point I was in my late 20s, and I had finally kind of acknowledged secretly to myself that I really only want a quiet place to drink and see where this goes, you know. Oh, you were going to, like, really give this a good effort of drinking. Yes. I was going <laughs> to explore my, all my options. And, I mean, I, I'm a person who believes that you explore your compulsions. Okay. You don't deny them. You find out what they are. I mean, it would be natural that... Why would you want to stifle that? I mean, if you think you really enjoy alcohol and you can make a go of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what you did. You yes, gave it, I did. You gave it a good go. I intentionally moved out of a city and to a very isolated place so that I could drink. And What see. was your drink? What was your passion? Pretty much anything. Oh, Massive really? quantities of beer. And I was the kind of drunk that no one knew was a drunk. Because I was such a bum vivant in bars. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know that there was a sad Joe that drank at home alone. I don't know what a bum vivant is. Bon vivant. Oh. I was a... Uh, boisterous and yes, energetic. Yes, bigger than life, energetic, okay. boisterous. Uh, always told good stories. Because I'd already been to... I had gone to seven different high schools, so I learned how to be... I learned how to make friends quickly because mm -hmm. I was in and out of places. I went to a school that was 84% black, George Washington High School in Alexandria, Virginia, and I was one of the prom attendants. <laughs> I was the only white one. <laughs> but I was pretty well liked because I could I could get in and out of situations and put a smile on people's faces. So That's interesting. I learned to kind of tap dance, so to speak, you know. And so you gave it a go, and how many years? I mean, I what'd you find? What'd you discover like, about yourself through this uh, self-exploration? When I moved to Southern Colorado, I had to give up this academic life that I'd cultivated, kind of, and a curiosity about science and stuff, and I had to become part of a rural blue-collar working force. And I had to teach myself to be a carpenter, and uh, I did, just by getting jobs. And uh, I drank and drank and drank, and it was a lot of fun. And drinking is a hell of a lot of fun until it's not fun. And suddenly, life doesn't really work anymore. You, you know, you're in your 30s and you feel sick. Um, you're alienating people, people you know, you begin to only hang out with other people that drink, you know, just like smokers generally hang out with other smokers. So mm -hmm. I was in a bar, one of the bars in town that I was virtually living in, in my mid-30s, and I met a girl, and we began to drink quiet Russians and go upstairs over the bar. She lived over the bar, and over the course of... 72 hours I got her pregnant and you, you last pretty long dude <laughs> <laughs> 72 hours is the world record I think <laughs> yeah stay you got nothing on me baby and 
she got pregnant and it became really a horror story. We tried to buy a house. We did buy a house. Um, we couldn't pay for the house, mainly because neither one of us could stay sober long enough. And, you know, things went bad to worse. She was selling blow. And this we had this beautiful baby in the middle of it, this great kid. And she, we got divorced. And I came home one day and the house was empty. Okay. And someone had moved the furniture out. And I went down to the bar and I was served divorce papers. And without opening them, I just threw them in a trash can across the bar and went to Mexico for two months on a literally a running drunk. Just on a full bender. Full, full, like. full tilt. I, I don't know how much I was drinking, but it was as much as a half gallon of vodka a day. And I wasn't even 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And, and I got, I had to come back and face this because I was running out of money. And apparently I was with a guy, another drunk, and I was in Tombstone, Arizona. And this sounds almost untrue, but I was in a flop house and I had a sleeping bag. And I remember looking down at my shoes, and I couldn't tie my shoes. I couldn't put it together synaptically to tie my shoes. My brain couldn't make my hands work. So I went to lay it on the floor in a sleeping bag, and I remember I wasn't sleeping anymore. I was just passing out, and there were cockroaches crawling across the top of my sleeping bag. And I got up, and I told this cat I was with, i got to find some help now to that this morning something's really bad and there were no there was no one to help me in tombstone arizona mm -hmm. <laughs> there were a lot of guys dressed like cowboys but there wasn't anyone who could help an alcoholic you know and so i was told that i got in my little pickup truck i'd long since pawned all my tools and everything i had nothing left i had a sleeping bag and I apparently drove by, bought a half gallon of vodka and some other booze, I don't know really what, and I drove back to Pagosa Springs, and this guy told me that I got a motel room, I picked up a hitchhiker, I have no memory of it, it was a blackout, that's the way many people murder people, mm -hmm. they murder someone and don't know what happened, they don't know what happened, mm -hmm. I didn't know what happened, but I did drive into Pagosa Springs, and I saw an old friend of mine walking down the street, and I pulled up before I'd even... I didn't even have a home. Mm. I was going to this guy's cabin and to sleep on the floor, and I said, are you still going to those meetings? And he laughed, and he said, yeah, you want to go to one? And I said, maybe I do, but I don't know. Let me think about it. And so I tried for three weeks. I tried to keep my drinking down to a 12-pack a day. And I wound up in a VFW out in the country one night, and I bought a bottle of Yukon Jack and started drinking it, and I guess I hit the floor. And my face was all messed up. My teeth had gone through my lip. I had carpet burns over this side of my face, and someone dragged me to this cabin, this one-room, 12-by-16 cabin. No water, no bathroom, nothing. And I looked in the mirror the next morning, and I mean, it looked like I'd been hit in the face with a tree branch. And I, that was the morning. That was it. Now, had you gotten the call yet from your ex-wife to come pick up your daughter? Or no. No. So you got sober before it was time yes, to become I got, Yeah, I cleaned up and got sober and went and got her. It, no, it, so I stayed in the cabin. I was telling you, I stayed in the cabin for eight days and went through the DTs. Yeah. It was really bad. It was really, really bad. Throwing up, and someone got me some Baby Ruth bars, and those were like heroin. I mean, it was I was re finally replacing ethyl alcohol with sugar calories, mm -hmm. and my body was really revolting. It wasn't. Did it wanted alcohol? So on the eighth day, I slept all night, and I knew I was going to be okay. So I managed to go find a job remodeling this other cabin, and they let me live in there. And one day, very shortly thereafter, I got a call from this woman saying, you need to come and get your daughter, mm -hmm. because if you don't come and get her, she's on the social services. 
because the cops are after me. They found some cocaine in the house, and, and I jumped in the car immediately and drove to Texas. Boom, right now. Like Got in the car. 18 hours. or 14. Straight through. Huh. 17 hours, something like that, to Dallas. And pulled up to the house. Where is she? And the woman said, she's in here. Let's get her in the car. And the woman said, I'm leaving too. I'm going to Pagosa. And I said, you can follow us, but you're on your own. Mm-hmm. I'm getting I'm getting taken Genevieve. And I drove Genevieve back to Pagosa Springs. How old was she at this time? She was five. Mm-hmm. And I had no clothes for her. I called a friend of mine who was a waitress who had two little girls and said, I need some clothes for this kid. She gave me a trash bag full of clothes, and that was it. That was the beginning of my life with Genevieve, and I, there are people here that have left that know mm-hmm. who Genevieve was, you know, that worked at Giants Foot. Yes, I mean, she's still here. She's in she's town right now. here today with me. <laughs> yeah. And she's, you know, still daddy's little girl. She's married. She's happy, and, healthy. And Genevieve and I had a very unusual relationship in that it was just us against the world. Because I had to figure out how to be sober and make a living and live my life and raise this kid, and I did it. And I used to take her out of school every winter and take her to Mexico. We drive all over Mexico, all over the place, from down the Baja, down to Chiapas. We, we've stayed in Mexico City. I take her out for months at a time, so by the time she was 15, she'd been all over a lot of Mexico and had spent a lot of time with her dad. And even now down here, we're kind of revisiting our relationship as it was. And I told her just a couple nights ago, Genevieve, do you realize we have a really unusually tight bond with each other? It's... I don't know of very many parents who have this bond with a kid like mm-hmm. I do with you. and Because for there were years that it was I was all she had. Mm-hmm. And if I had not been there, she would have been in a foster home. Mm-hmm. And everyone knew that. And so... Well, yeah, what does she say about that upbringing? I mean, she loves you. it. Are you kidding me? She is so... Oh, man, I'm her hero. You know, and, and I was, I kind of brushed on this this morning with, um, I was talking to another person here. I've seen a lot of guys go through shit with their kids and not be able to see their children. And, yeah, parents and, are using them as leverage in order to hurt yeah, the Yes, husband. very much so. And I happen to be very lucky that way. And all I can tell these guys, and I told one of your friends this morning, is that you just persevere. Because those kids remember and you're the, especially if you have a girl, you're the first man in their life. And the way you respond to life is the way they, that's the way they see you. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important for you to be the strongest possible man in their life. And you make mistakes. You can be angry. You can be loud. You can lose it. You can throw shit. And you can have your, you, your kids can see you make mistakes but your kids have to see you rectify the mistakes because living is about making mistakes. Take responsibility. Watch you take responsibility yes. for the mistakes. Yes. So I, I, Genevieve is just a great kid. A lot of people might think that she's could have been more, but I think she's everything. She's a, Super fucking happy individual and She's accomplished human being in, in and her studies, and you know she loves her old man, and yeah, she's gotten her degree, and I see no holes in that person. She I doesn't mean, have no problem with drugs and alcohol. No problems <laughs> with drugs and alcohol, please. Yeah, I mean, what more could I ask for? Absolutely. So, yeah, it was. It's been a. It's life has been a uh, a big adventure, but through all this. Thing with my parents. My parents always told us to live life on life's terms, and that's what I've tried to do, you know, and I think I told you uh, that, you know, when I was learning how to live in my 40s again, and I still adhere to this to this very day, is you get up, you do the next right thing every mm-hmm. single day. None of us is Mother Teresa. 
Mm-hmm. And if the next right thing is picking up a piece of trash, saying hello to someone with a smile on your face when you don't feel like it, when it's reading a book that you didn't want to read, whatever the next right thing is, do it. Mm-hmm. And you will succeed. There's just, I have no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. I've done enough things. I've, I'm not that old, but I've lived a certain way for a certain amount of time, and I know that's true, and I know it works. Right. So, you know, whether you're religious or not. Yeah. You know. And you've had some ups and downs here in Nicaragua. I mean, you came down with yeah, your your second wife and your yes. two daughters. Yeah. Well, Jen Weavey was away at school, yes. college, and you started investing. Yeah. And had considered a life here as an investment. Yep. And then 2008 hits. Yes. And you lose it all. I came down with them, checked the place out, found Gigante, bought the place, bought the property from um, some investors, mm-hmm. uh, put my money into this house, designed this house myself, built it, it worked, and I got back to the United... I finally got this damn thing rented to someone, and I got back to the United States, and within... A handful of days, two days, Lehman Brothers collapsed. And that was the end of the line with Joe's big adventure in Nicaragua. Joe's big adventure failed. So for the first time since I'd been sober, I had to face a huge failure. Mm -hmm. And my house was on the line. The house that I built with my own hands, the house I loved my own private Hawaii. I mean, I have the nicest house, man. It's heated with solar panels, both built. I have another building with an apartment upstairs, and, you know, I tried to do the right thing, building the building, the first right thing. I tried to do a building that was responsibly built, heated with the sun, and I was I was on the verge of losing it because of something I'd done in Nicaragua. And I felt incredible guilt for having put my wife and these little kids through this, and now I was broke. I had no business. My little construction business was dead. Couldn't sell the house in Nicaragua. It was I was getting a succession of losers in there that couldn't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And as they used to call them, loser surfers. <laughs> and uh, and I uh, I came down here and told my wife, I'm going to buy a one-way ticket, come down and look for a job. And I couldn't find a job. And after three months, I had a roommate here, a guy, an expat, retired guy, a guy who worked in Afghanistan. And I said, I got to close this thing up, turn it back to the jungle. I got to go. I, I got to go. I got to walk on. I guess I'm losing my house. Mm. And he said, I'll buy it. And four days later, I was in Austin, Texas with a pile of money and a backpack. And I put it on a plane. Mm-hmm. And thanks to Thank you, God. I got back to Albuquerque, and I, I then I went to work um, against Wells Fargo. Mm-hmm. I told my wife, stop making payments on the home equity loan, because we got fucked. These banks fucked us. We didn't lose this money. Mm-hmm. We made what we thought were prudent decisions, many millions of us. We loved our homes, and now five big banks are going to tell us we can't have our houses? Fuck you. Yeah. So... I didn't have a job, so I decided my job now is to take Wells Fargo to the fucking mat, just like my old man taught me how to box, and get my house back. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did, and I on it. And so I went to work every day. I would send. I can't tell you the hundreds of certified letters I sent to this, the board of Wells Fargo, the CEO John Stumpf. The uh, I used to keep Barack Obama up to date, apprised <laughs> of my situation on a bi-weekly basis. Like, oh, this is what's happening now with Wells Fargo, <laughs> Mr. President. And he acknowledged that he had received the letters. I don't think he signed them himself, but he was receiving my letters and reading them. Mm-hmm. And I sent certified letters to all my congressmen, uh, other congressmen, people that were dealing with this, and I thought, you know, I don't know what else to do but make a lot of noise about this because 
I would call Wells Fargo and I would tell them on the phone straight up, and I did this more than five times, you will never take my house. You will never take my house. And I meant it. You will never take my house. And through a series of friends, I was able, real estate friends, I was able to get comparable evaluations of the house because it's an unusual house. And they would say, this house is really not saleable. It's mm. solar heated. And they would really fade Wells Fargo with some bullshit. They were really not. And they hated him. This small town of ours had been ravaged by uh, foreclosures. Yeah. And the real estate agents hated the big banks. Then I got a friend of mine whose wife was an appraiser. And she appraised my house at a ridiculously low amount just over a hundred thousand dollars and by the time i submitted that to wells fargo wells fargo was so tired of me they got a woman who worked for wells fargo named cindy who i just deleted from speed dial last year to help me negotiate my settlement with them they gave me they were so fucking sick of me So I went to, I had borrowed money from the Rural Housing Service, U.S. Department of Agriculture, Rural Housing Service, service is set up for rural people who have been priced out of their high-dollar tourist communities. And I'd gotten a loan from them. They let me design the first passive solar house in the program. and, And I got a hold of their deputy director who said, considering who we've just selected, we would not normally do this. But in your case, negotiate a settlement with Wells Fargo, and we will back you up with a check. And I negotiated a $65,000 settlement on a $108,000 loan with Wells Fargo, and the United States government wrote me a check for $65,000, and I paid Wells Fargo back. Talk about perseverance, brother. Listen, man, the the banks were triple-dipping on these foreclosures. They were... They were not only foreclosing on the people and getting the house back, they were getting a write-off on the tax loss, and then they were reselling the house. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were making fucking bank Mm -hmm. on this, and they weren't going to do it with me. So Congratulations. Yeah, so that happened. In the interim, I had bought, well, I'd been building my house. I had bought another house down there. Not a house, but a property, right? Uh, Another property. Well, you guys were at Giant's Foot, Mm -hmm. and... uh, I am down here, and I just found out last night, the guy that had built my house had really taken advantage of me um, by getting what's called a a general power of attorney, which in Nicaragua means basically I gave him me, my identity. Mm -hmm. He could do anything. And he did it under the guise that he was going to help you pay your taxes. He was going to help me pay my taxes. Oh, Jose, you know, if there are any problems with the association, I can take care of them for you. Mm. But in reality, he was setting me up. He was, for this knockout punch, he was going to try and take my house Mm -hmm. or he was going to try and take this property. Yeah. Well, I sold the house before he could take the house. Okay. So he took the property and he attempted to sell my property. And apparently he did for $4,000 to a neighbor. And I had the friend, the guy who I had picked up in the pickup truck who had sold me the property initially for the house, he called me and he said, Joe, what's your relationship with this guy? And I said, man, it's bad. And he said, it is bad because he claims he sold your property. You need to get down here. Mm -hmm. And so I came down here last week and call me Mr. Lucky. Um, I've I've said this about myself my whole adult life since I quit drinking. Call me Mr. For one thing, I didn't die. Call me Mr. Lucky. My friend, my Nicaraguan friend, took care of business for me, and this guy has been indispensable. He and his uncle have been in helping me save this property, mm-hmm. and it's only because they liked me. Well, you were kind to them as well, and I was kind to them as well, mm-hmm. and we we became friends. Yeah, and I had. St- Nicaraguan friends that I didn't know were I loved so much, mm-hmm. but now I really do, and we now I know that I will have a lifelong 
relationship with this particular exact, mm -hmm. this person. Mm -hmm. And now I'm back in Igante thinking about what my next move is because now I have this beautiful piece of property and... Um, yeah, you've talked about your passion for designing houses yeah, and properties. Yeah, and, and I love to design houses. The house I designed for myself is... I've always been interested in housing for uh, uh, moderate income and low income people. Everyone, I always have felt, everyone deserves to have their own great experience in a house they own that's aesthetic looking, that makes them feel good living in their house. And I think everyone, I want to provide that experience for people. So I'm interested in houses that work for humans, that work for people. Mm -hmm. So I, I hope I can do this in Nicaragua. And I think I'm going to build another one in the United States. Oh, really? Another yeah. energy-efficient house? Yeah, another super energy-efficient house. I have another. I have enough equity in the house I own. And uh, Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you, I had a couple other liens on the house from credit cards associated with this that I tried to settle, and these credit card people wouldn't settle. One was a Wells Fargo credit card, and one of them just settled with me. They just dropped the whole thing. Okay. And I'm, I'm in the middle of settling with Wells Fargo for a credit card, too. So I'm. Do you write letters still every day telling them you're not going to get my money? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Calling them? No, I don't. No, I, it's much more amiable than that now. Okay. Um, so, I'm, so it looks like I may be able to get some money and uh, design another house and build another house and... Life is good again, but in the interim, I got divorced okay. from a woman that some of you may know, uh, who in the end was, uh, that didn't work out. And the stress of everything kind the, of... The stress of uh, the, the, the two daughters and the losing the, the house and the money, it was really stressful, and you yeah. know, I had anger issues from my dad, and Maybe I wasn't the nicest guy all the time, but, you know, she wasn't very nice either. So, uh, it, uh, uh, you know, well, things happen. And, yeah. You know, and time, my heart time was does broken. Heal. Time and does time heal. does heal. And I'm back here, and I feel pretty good about being back here and pretty happy about going back home and and realizing I got my property back. And, yeah, well, we're happy to have you back. Yeah. And, and, and I realized I was a guest on uh, Misfits and Rejects, too, <laughs> which I think is pretty fucking cool, you guys. I think that Chapin has hit on, a, on something that's really very interesting. And I'm going to do my part to find him some heavy hitters. I, I re I've been thinking about this. Well, it's appreciated, yeah, you I know. mean... I write I like my this. letters too, but I don't. I haven't gotten any responses. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. There's one gentleman, John Lee Dumas. Thank you, John. Big shout out. He's an entrepreneur, online entrepreneur. Has his own podcast. He's got over 1.5 million listeners. Like he came on my podcast and was kind enough to share his oh nice opinions about how to be an entrepreneur and, and be successful at it. Yeah, and not only be an entrepreneur, but how to live life gracefully and and you know how it's. You know, everyone has a story, and some of the stories aren't very interesting, but some of the stories, the person beneath the the facade, people are really interesting, and I'm not a person who really goes out of his way to get to know people. I, I, I have an attitude that I probably know enough, and um, I think we were talking a little bit about this the other night. But I mean, even even with me, you know, like I've learned a lot about you. I've learned that you are a different person than I thought you were, mm -hmm. and I really kind of, I enjoy that. I really like that. That's really a, really a cool thing. And now that now I may not see you all the time, but now I feel like kind of am connected to you. Absolutely, you know, and 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 that. You know, hopefully you're kind of connected with me and, you know, we'll pass each other by, at least in our own heads once in a while and wonder mm -hmm. what the other person is doing and wish them well. 100%. You know, and I think that with your podcast, you can, you can really expand that. Thank you. You can really expand that. this and Those make this words. something very, very enjoyable. You can, you can make this a learning experience for people. Well, thank you. You know, I'm dead serious. I appreciate it, that. It's nice to hear you those know? kind words and that support that comes from people I care about. I really, it makes me want to 
for John because absolutely, you know, I don't make any money from this yet. I hope to monetize soon, but it's you know this takes a lot of work. But you know, you know what? I you know money's not the primary objective. The primary objective is the product. Hundred percent. And I really think that if you keep the product at a really high level, success will come for you. Thank you. You know, and it may not come monetarily, but su- success isn't always monetary. That's true. You know, Very I mean, this words. will make you an infinitely more interesting person. <laughs> Thank and you. Yeah. Seriously. I believe you. I think it's just really, you know, I like I like how you're kind of wrapping this up in a very, I think, eloquent, beautiful way. Well, thanks. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's just what I want to pass on. It's not, life isn't always about competition and, you know, making it. Mm-hmm. And it really isn't. It's about kind of being here and being mindful and... You know, a little introspection it, here and there. And, you know, yeah, turning inward and kind of thinking things through and maybe thinking about how you can be a little kinder and, you know, and uh, you know, just trying to be a better person. Mm-hmm. And, or stop something you dislike about yourself, like the drinking. Exactly. You know? or, how to, or trying to make yourself a better person. Right. And how to go through the world on a daily basis with, you know, because many people have far worse problems than you and I do mm-hmm. and how to go through the world on a daily basis and just make it kind of a better world and you know you don't have to be someone well known mm-hmm. you can just be you right and make the world a better person make the world a better world right you know and make yourself a better person so if, That's um, the way I'm rolling these days, folks. I love it, dude. Stay <laughs> present and be a good person. You know, with people out there who have interest in, you know, the type of homes that you build. Yeah. That maybe want a consultant or some sure. ideas or even for you to design their house. There's yes. there an email they could find you at? Yes. E-D-S-C-H-N-E-E-D, the numeral 8, at hotmail.com. Ed Schneed. At Hotmail.com. That was an old alias of mine when I was drinking. I needed an alias because I didn't want people bothering me on the phone. So Ed Schmid was my alias. I was a heavy vodka drinking white house painter. (laughs) (laughs) So a pleasure having you, Joe. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Much love, brother. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.